chapter 11, um, go ahead and go there. Uh, again, we're pro- primarily going to be focusing in just on uh, the first part of this and the last part of this, just because we don't have time to touch on absolutely everything in it. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 is kind of the chapter this past week that uh, just kind of grabbed a hold of my heart as I was doing the Bible reading plan. For those of you that don't know, this year as a church, we're reading through the New Testament together as a church, one chapter a day, five days a week. Um, we're uh, journal for those of us that want to, we're, we're also kind of journaling through it. If you haven't grabbed one of these, we can get you some. It's, we call it the look journal. It's a little bookmark where you just ask some, has some questions on it to look for in the text and kind of kind of lead you and guide you in journaling through the text um, as you do your devotionals. And, and the fourth question on here, in fact, if I was going to say, if you only ask one of these questions, for those of you that are doing it, the fourth one that says, look for God in the gospel. And then the sub-questions underneath that, what does it say about who he is and what he has done and how is this good news? Uh, and that's really asking that question of this text as I kind of looked at the chapter as a whole this past week, just in my own personal reading, is really kind of what led me to what I want to talk with you about today. Because, um, again, in this passage, uh, if most, most of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 11, probably the reason that you're familiar with it is because of those verses that I read at the very end of the chapter. Because you will find these verses in Christian uh, bookstores and any place that sells any sort of Christian paraphernalia, and you will find this verse on a coffee mug or on a wall hanging or on a, on a t-shirt or on some sort of pretty little thing that you just set around, a cross-stitching maybe. I don't, I don't know. But he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we all say yes and amen to that that, right? Amen? That's good. That's really good news. We like, we like those verses. But as is typically the case, whenever you bump into verses that are kind of famous or well-known because, you know, you've got them printed on stuff or whatever, and I'm not saying that that's bad, is, is that usually what we forget is the rest of the context around it. And while those verses are glorious and those verses, uh, you know, Jesus is giving us this awesome promise holding out this offer of rest, the entire rest of the chapter is not filled with rest, it is filled with offense. That Jesus says some really, really, really offen- offensive things in it. Things that are not, just, not, not because he's just a meanie, okay? That's not, that's not who Jesus is. He's, he's perfect in every sort of way. But, but the thing that I want us to get, and just for a second from kind of a, a pastoral perspective, is guys, I want us to be worshiping the real Jesus. The real Jesus. We talked several weeks ago when we were in 2 Corinthians about how these super apostles were coming about and they were preaching another Jesus. And Paul told the Corinthian church, he goes, if people preach another Jesus, you accept it well enough. There's still another Jesus being preached today. And many times it's not the Jesus that offers you rest and offense. It's just the Jesus that offers you rest. And he never says anything offensive, but that's not the real Jesus. And my heart for us as a church, if we're going to be real disciples, then we need to follow the real Jesus, amen? Because we can't be a real disciple if we don't follow the real Jesus, And the real Jesus, yes, he absolutely offers you rest, and I want to talk about that, and it is glorious, and we need it, and it is good news. But the same Jesus that offers us the rest is the same Jesus who also gives us the offense. But in all of it, he is good. He is good. Amen? And and for those of you that are maybe, you know, I was thinking about maybe this might be, uh, I don't know, 
new news to some of you that Jesus at times will offend you. But I think for anybody who's walked with the Lord um, for several years and is really trying to live as a disciple, to follow him, to learn, to learn from him, to follow in his footsteps, I think that you'll find that this is true and there's a unique temptation that can come about. Because Jesus will not always work everything out for you the way you think he needs to work things out for you. And what's unique about it, and kind of, it almost seems paradoxical, is that if you're really committed to following Jesus, then you will actually face this temptation that maybe those who aren't really committed to following Jesus won't ever face. Because if you're following the wrong Jesus, the Jesus that many people follow, he never says anything offensive. He just roots for you, and he's your personal cheerleader, and you can do no wrong, and man, even when you mess up, hey, it's okay, and he's got pom-poms. Give me an N, give me an E, give me a Neil, yes. That's just, that's what he, I'm not saying Jesus, I'm not saying Neil thinks that, but, but that's kind of the Jesus that we've created. But Jesus sometimes uh, offends us. And here at the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 11, um, I just want to, I want to put these two things together today, that the same Christ that offers us the rest is the same Christ that um, many times gives us the offense. But here in Matt, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist, who we read about earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, um, John the Baptist, his life was specifically prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was the one that was to come and to prepare the way uh, for the Lord and to prepare the way for his ministry. Um, and he kind of burst onto the scene and he was baptizing folks and calling them to repentance. And uh, Jesus is gonna go on later in this passage actually that I didn't read. And he is going to give John probably one of the greatest um, commendations that you'll find anywhere. He says that among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So out of all natural men, I mean, John was a sinner, he needed redeemed, just like we all need to redeem because he was born in Adam, just like we all are. And so he had this inerrant sinful nature. Yet at the same time, Jesus says, among those born of women, like just natural men, there's none greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, even though he had fulfilled his ministry well, now at this point in the story, he finds himself in prison. And if you'll jump ahead to Matthew chapter 14, you don't need to jump ahead right now, but you'll find that the reason that he was in prison is because he stood up and he spoke truth to power and he called out the um, political rulers of his day, one of them being Herod. And he tells Herod that he's living in sin because Herod had committed adultery with his brother Philip's wife and had then taken her uh, to be his own wife. And John was a straight shooter, man. He called a spade a spade. And he said, that's sinful, and it's wrong, and it's not right. And so John had been thrown into prison. And man, things, when you're sitting in prison, uh, things can change. Doubts can begin to come in. Prison changes things. Um, and here, even though John the Baptist is a great, great godly man, we see him struggling with some doubt. And he's paved the way for Jesus. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He baptizes Jesus. He sees the Holy Spirit come down on him like we talked about last week. And he points everybody to him. But now he's sitting in prison, and in verse 3, we see this godly, godly man wrestling with doubt. And now that he's in prison, verse 3, it says, 
he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, are, are, you, are you the one? Are you the one? Are you, are you the one who is to come? And see, this was John's whole ministry. John was like, well, he, his whole job that God had laid out for him was to point to the one who is to come. And John's like, did I, did I get this wrong? Why? Because he's in prison, because outwardly things have changed. Things uh, have gotten difficult. And that's just true to life, right? Isn't that true? Like when we're singing, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. And we're just, and man, it's, we know who Jesus is then. But when we're sitting in prison, when things are difficult, when we're in isolation, when we're cut off from everything else, when like difficulty and trial comes into our life, Jesus, are you, I, I thought you were the one, but are you, are you, are you really the one? It's true. We struggle with it. We don't have to be afraid of doubt. John wasn't afraid to share his doubts. He shares his doubts with Jesus, which I would encourage each one of you to do as well when you have doubts. But John sends these messengers to Jesus and, and they relay this question, you know, are you, are you the one? You know, and here's Jesus' response, okay? And it's a little bit offensive on the surface, but it's even more offensive when you realize exactly what Jesus is doing here when he responds. Jesus responds like this, verse four. It says, and Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And then he's gonna quote from two passages out of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. He's gonna smush these, the, those two passages together and quote part of them. Verse five, he says, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them, okay? Now, in Isaiah 35, 5, again, he says, the, Isaiah 35, 5 says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be stopped, then the lame man shall leap like a deer. And then if you go over to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and then that's where Jesus stops, okay? These were messianic passages. These were prophecies that were recognized by everybody, including John the Baptist, that these were about the Messiah. And John's saying, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one we're to look for? And Jesus quotes these, and he says, yes, but here's the kicker. And Jesus knows what he's doing, I believe, and, I know, and I'm sure that he knew that John would know what comes next as well. Is right after in Isaiah, after, after that little phrase, the, the poor have the good news preached to them, in Isaiah 61.1, Isaiah 61.1 continues on, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the, pr- of, and the, opening of the prison doors to those who are bound. Now, where's John sitting right now as he's hearing this? He's in prison. And John says, are, are you the one? Or should we expect another? And Jesus says, no, I'm the one. I'm the one. The blind are hearing, the deaf are, I'm sorry, the blind are seeing, the deaf, the deaf are hearing, the lame can walk, the poor are having the good news 
preached to them. And if you can imagine these messengers that came from John, went to Jesus, asked him if he's the one, they get the answer from, this answer from Jesus, and they come back and they relay this to John, and they begin to tell John how Jesus responded, and, and they say, yeah, G- you know, um, John, he said, you know, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them, and John's like, I know this passage, I know what's coming next, the prisoners are set free from prison, and then they just stop, though. And John's like, what else did he say? And they're like, well, he, he stopped there. Well, he didn't stop there. Here's what he takes on to the end of it. Verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Because here's the deal, and here's one of the reasons, and, and again, for those of you that, that are following Christ, that wanna live as disciples, This is one of the realities that you'll face. It's a very true-to-life reality. Is that you'll believe that God is all-powerful, that he is almighty, that there is nothing that he can't do, and you'll see him moving out here in different ways and in different places, but then every now and then, maybe he doesn't do, though, what you know that he can do in your life to set you free from the prison that you're in in that moment. And there will be opportunity to be tempted, not at his power. John knows that he can do this. If he can make the blind see, if he can make the deaf hear, he can get John out of prison. But just that, no, John, that's not, that's not my plan. Have you ever been offended by Jesus? Anybody? Have you ever been offended by Jesus? And I would submit to you that if you follow Christ wholeheartedly, consistently, if you do choose to live as a disciple, there will be times when you will be tempted to be offended by him. And, I, and again, my heart, if I could just step back for a second, just talk to you a little bit, especially those of you that, that call Mercy Hill home. Guys, I want us to get this. I want us to get this. Because there's a way that we can sometimes worship Jesus when everything's going good and everything's going all right, but then there's another way that we kind of, we stop worshiping him and we pull back in our affection and in our love and in our adoration of him when things get difficult. But Mercy Hill Church, he is always, always, always worthy of our praise. Amen? He's always worthy. And Again, in verse six, there's a promise in there. It says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. If you can face this temptation of maybe being offended by Jesus because he's not working things out in your life the way you think he needs to work them out right now, if you can say, God, I don't understand this. You know this hurts, you know I'm lonely, you know I feel bound but I know you still love me. There's a blessing for you. There's a special blessing for you. Now, we're gonna come back and we're gonna talk a little bit more about John at the end, but look also to the end of the chapter, to this passage that we're probably more familiar with um, in regards to his rest. Uh, Very quickly, just leading up to that, Jesus says more offensive things throughout, throughout the chapter. Um, he talks about how that generation was 
basically like a bunch of whiny little kids um, who no matter what you gave them or took away from them or did for them, they were just never, never satisfied. Um, verse 18, he says, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. Um, there's more things to be offended by uh, in our natural fleshly uh, human selves because of the way that he speaks about judgment. I mean, you talk about verses that you won't see on a coffee mug or on a wall hanging. Um, uh, look at verses 21 and 22. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Stick that on your t-shirt. Verse 23 and 24, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day, but I tell you that it will be more toler tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And then Jesus continues to press at home, uh, speaking about his sovereignty. And again, the reason this offends us is because um, we love to think that our will is ultimate. There's nothing that would ever infringe upon our will. Um, and so we do all sorts of gymnastics to you know, try to get around this. Verses 25 through 27, at that time Jesus declared, and he, all of a sudden Jesus is now praying to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If you understand what Jesus is saying, there's a sense in which our natural selves too are be offended by that. God would hide things from certain people. God would reveal things to others. But at the end of the offense comes the promise of rest. Verse 28, again, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Now, there's, there's several images here, and the, and the imagery is, is really, really beautiful when you understand what Jesus is talking about. First of all, let's start in verse 29 with this imagery of the yoke. Um, can I get that picture up there, Josh? Do you have the image of the yoke? There he is. Now, um, by the way, this is kind of funny, just a little side note here. So I just Googled yoke <laughs> this past week, and the first picture that comes up is that one. And you can actually, and that's a picture from the Layman's Hardware website, and you can purchase that yoke for $119 uh, if, you're, if you're interested at all. But anyway, <laughs> I just thought that was funny that that's the first thing that came up. This is, I believe, that, again, there could be, a, it could be a yoke. Some commentators think he's talking here of like a yoke of oxen, Yoke that you would hook to a team of oxen that would pull something. Others think that it's more of a yoke like this, which was very common back in the day. Again, they would have to carry water very long distances because, you know, there was no tap water. They would have wells, and so they'd have to carry water long distances many times. And so it'd be this type of yoke. But here's, here's the whole point, is that whether it's an oxen yoke or whether it's a yoke for a person like the one at Layman's Hardware uh, or whatever, the point is kind of the same, is that a yoke is this. A yoke is something extra that you carry so that you can carry something extra. Let me say that again. A yoke is something extra that you carry so that you can carry something extra. Um, 
So again, he takes this extra yoke upon him so that he can carry these extra buckets. Another illustration would be, maybe that makes a little bit more sense to us, is like that of a tool belt. If you work construction, like, you, you know, it's hard to have like your hammer and your, and your tin snips and, you know, your knife and your tape measure and all this stuff. And so you, you wear this tool belt, you wear something extra so that you can carry extra stuff. Does that make sense? And Jesus here, in this invitation to us, is calling us to carry something extra so that we can carry extra stuff. <laughs> that there are burdens in this life. And again, I think the, the, it's wide open here. I think like what type of burdens? I think all sorts of burdens. I think anything applies. But I would argue that from the context and from some of the offenses that we already looked at, especially that of John the Baptist, that one of the extra things that he wants you to be able to carry is the burden of not always having things work out for you the way you think they need to work out for you. What do you do? Where do you go? When things get really difficult, when you're in prison and you're not sure why God isn't delivering you from it in that moment and changing your circumstances, where else do you go? You go to the one who's allowing you to sit in prison and to carry that burden. You go to Christ. And now that's one of the, the images there. Again, there's layers to this. A yoke was very commonly referred to as a rabbi's teaching, like back in the context, different rabbis had different yokes. This was their teaching that they would take upon themselves. The law, the law, the Old Testament law was very commonly referred to as a yoke, okay? And this is where the imagery gets really, gets really beautiful and rich if we kind of get down into it and understand, and, and understand it. Because Jesus here, is offering a different yoke than just that of what people were used to in the law. And so Jesus would contend all the time throughout the Gospels with the Pharisees, those who, would, he would said, would lay a burden on people but would not do so much as lift one finger to help them. Jesus is give, giving a different type of, of yoke here. And this yoke is not rules. The yoke that Jesus offers is not rules. It is a relationship with him. It is not laws. It is life. That the offer that Christ gives, the essence of, you know, when we talk about grace, like, like, like what is grace? What is grace? Well, grace is grace, you know? I mean, like that's the way we talk about it. Here's, here's the essence of what grace is. Grace is the very life of God offered to you. Again, if you look back in those passages, verse 27, right before this, right before this promise, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, that when, if you know Christ, it is because ultimately God has chosen to reveal His Son in you, and the thing that He has invited you into is the very life of God. The knowledge that Christ has of the Father, He invites you into that knowledge, into that experiential relationship with the Father and with the Son. And we settle for lesser things all the time, all the time. And this is the essence of our sin, is that we settle for less than partaking in the very life of God. 
that God's life is so great, his joy, his glory, it is so beautiful, it is so all-consuming that it takes God to reveal God. That's what he's saying here in verse 27. Is that he is so glorious, he is so big, it takes the Father to reveal the Son. It takes the Son to reveal the Father. And this is for those of us that grew up in church, just, you know, uh, not wrong, this is okay, I've told this to my kids, but man, don't, don't just say this in some sort of a flippant way, like, would you like to pray a prayer and ask Jesus into your heart? Like, like that, that's great, but we have no idea the weight that is behind that. Are you following me? That you have been called into community with an eternal being that has always existed from before the foundations of the world. He's just always been there. He is the great I am, eternal, existing forever in eternity past and all of in, in eternity future. And you are invited into this relationship, into this life with him. We're focused on all these little things right down here in front of us. These little things that bother us. When unspeakable joy is offered to us. And again, I, just very quickly in the context first, look at the, the personal, uh, personal pronouns. I think that's, I'm, I wasn't an, an English major. I wasn't very good at English, period. But, um, but he says, come to me, all you who, are heavy, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is calling us to himself. Okay, you follow? That's the yoke. Now, there's more imagery here. Let's go, let's go deeper with this. Is that I believe that what Jesus is referencing here is that he, he is alluding to the fact that he is the better Moses, okay? So very quickly, if you've been tracking it all through the book of Matthew, or if you haven't seen this yet, go back and reread it, and you'll see this, is that Matthew writes with an agenda. Matthew uh, organizes his, um, his information about the life of Christ, not in a chronological order, but in a topical order, because he's trying to make a point about the life of Christ. One of the motifs that is throughout the book of Matthew is that Jesus is the better Moses, okay? So very quickly, just to show you a little bit of what I mean, is that Moses brought his people out of Egypt. In Matthew's gospel, before, you know, when Jesus is a little baby, he goes down into Egypt, and then he comes out of Egypt with, with, with Mary and Joseph. And so you've got that. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness watching you know, his father-in-law's Jeth Jethro's sheep in the wilderness before he was called to go stand before Pharaoh and deliver his people. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness alone, fasting and in prayer, and then after 40 days, he's, be he's tempted by the devil, okay? And he goes in, and what's he gonna do with the devil? He's gonna overcome him so that he can come and set his people free. Moses brings him out and goes up to the mountain, up to Mount Sinai, and receives the law. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he gives the better law. Again, not replacing it, but fulfilling it, articulating it in every, in every single way. Moses was called to take the people, not just out of Egypt, but into the promised land. Do you know what the promised land is continually referred to in the Old Testament? The place of what? Rest. Rest. Jesus is coming. He says, I'm going to give you a better rest. Not the rest of the law. I'm going to fulfill the law for you because you can't. If you'll come to me, 
I will give you rest. This is what the entire book of Hebrews is about. That Jesus is the better everything. He's the better temple. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better priest. He's the better Moses. He's the better rest. And so Jesus here stands, and again, you've you got to get all this to, to feel the weight of this. Come to me. He stands as a better Moses, and I will give you rest. But hear me now. Hear me now, okay? Because I know there's a lot of imagery and typology and metaphor going on here, but guys, this is real. Man, this is real. This will change your life. Is that in the Old Testament, that rest was a place, okay? That rest was in the promised land. Rest is no longer a place. Rest is a person. Rest is in Christ. And here's the thing I want you to get, if you're tracking with me, is that many of you are still living under the law. And here's how I know that. is because you think rest is going to come when you just arrive at that certain place. You think rest is going to come if you can just, you know, conquer this mountain that's in front of you. If you can just get married, if you can just, you know, have enough money, save enough money, if you can just get that promotion, if you can just gain the respect of per- certain people, if you can just get certain things paid off, if you can just, you know, get that new title or position, whatever it is, we're all striving for something that we think is going to give us rest. And Jesus says, no, 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 come to me, I will give you rest. Jesus Christ is the only place that rest is found. And I'm saying that to you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is nowhere else that you will find rest for your soul other than in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came 2,000 years ago, died, rose again, ascended back into heaven, and now lives forever to make intercession for all those who trust in him. But I'm not just saying it to those that don't know Jesus as their Savior. Although if you don't, trust him right now. Right now, trust him. And that's the emphasis of this invitation here. This come, it's, it's uh, in the Greek, it's, it's in the emphatic. He's not saying, come to me like when it's convenient. He said, come, 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 come. Come, come to me. Right now where you are, believe in Christ. But it's not just for the unbeliever. Christian church, it's for you. Quit laboring to strive to enter into some other whatever it might be that you think is going to give you rest because I'm telling you there is none other than the rest that is found in Jesus. And it's why so many Christians are burned out, so many Christians are discontent, so many Christians don't live with any joy, and why so many Christians are so ineffective in the world because we are not emulating anything that the world wants because we're not resting in the one who came to give it to us. Amen? Church, we got to come to him. This is why the gospel, the gospel isn't just for salvation. The gospel is every single day. Man, I had a, oh, I had a, just a bad week this week. I knew it was going to be kind of a bad week because I had too much on my plate. But it just was what it was. I haven't had a week like this in like six months. I try to do good at guarding myself from stuff, but it just, it just was what it was. And just being real honest and transparent with you, when Eric Miller gets overly busy, Eric Miller gets overly tired, and then Eric Miller gets overly grumpy. And, man, this morning, I'm telling you, I just, I need rest. I need my Jesus right now this morning as much as I've ever needed him. 
I have nothing. I have nothing other than him. Standing before Almighty God, before the Father. Seeing me in all of my brokenness and in all my shortcomings. And saying to the Father, I died for that one. The Father says, yeah, I know. I, I sent you to die for that one. And church, that's all you have as well. And God invites us into this, invites us into this rest. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. You know, going back to John the Baptist, it seems like Jesus was maybe being, I don't know, a little bit callous there, you know? Like, man, Jesus, did you really have to quote that passage that talks about the prison, prisoners being set free? <laughs> but I think that what Jesus was doing there with John was he was offering him rest too. In a very real way, Jesus was saying to John, John, I know you don't understand. I know you want out. But I offer you rest too. And for John the Baptist, here's what his rest looked like. Okay? Just to give you a grid here for the way things outwardly sometimes don't look that glamorous. Is if over in Matthew 14, you'll read the story of how John ends up dying, probably not very long after Jesus sends these messengers back to him and gives him this word. Is that Herod, this wicked man that John the Baptist had been faithful and confronted in his sin so that he would have an opportunity to repent and turn. Herod's throwing a birthday party. And uh, let's just say it's not a PG-rated birthday party. Okay? It's an R-rated birthday party. And there's some dancers there, one of them being his stepdaughter, and they dance in front of Herod and his boys. And, uh, and Herod, in all of his earthly pride and pomp, he, uh, he makes this great boast because it says that they had pleased him with their dancing. He says, ask of me whatever you want, and I shall give it to you up to half the kingdom. Very arrogant, proud, boastful thing, declaration for a king to make. And so, again, John had spoken into their marriage, and so Herod's wife, who used to be his brother's wife, it's an awkward family situation, um, goes over and asks her mom quick what, what she should ask for. And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What a request. And that's how John dies. John, the greatest of those born among women, dies at the hands of an evil king and the request of an immoral dancing girl and her mom. But the moment that ax came down, and John was killed, he entered into rest. Amen?
he entered into rest. And I think Jesus was telling him here, John, your rest, man, it's just around the corner, buddy. You've done good. You've been faithful. Your rest is coming. And listen, I don't know what your rest specifically looks like, but I just want to say here as we close that if you feel like Jesus has forgotten about you in prison this morning, and if you're starting to become a little bit offended that maybe he's forgotten about you or why aren't you doing, Lord, what you said you do, I, I believe the same promise is true. I know that the same promise is true. That no matter what your circumstances are, it's not a place or it's not a change of the outward that's going to give you rest. It's will you right now here today come to Jesus? Will you trust him? Will you lay it down? And even if it's his will for you to be beheaded, which I don't think is the case here, but even if it is, say, Christ, I trust you. You're good. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for your love for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are, oh man, you are the one and only. Like there is nobody, there's nobody like you. Nobody like you. And Jesus, I just pray for us as a church at Mercy Hill that week in and week out that we would sing to just as we're about to do here and we would talk about and we would learn about and we would worship the real Jesus. And we know, Lord, we saw this morning, Lord, we have no excuse to not have a grid for it anymore because we saw it this morning in your word. Sometimes you offend. Sometimes you lead us to offense. But you also lead us to rest. And so, God, I just pray that each one of us could do that. You are our better Moses. You are our better promised land. Please help us this morning, Lord, to take your yoke upon us so that we could carry the burdens of this life in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.